from Whidbey Island, Washington. This is Stories from Women Who Walk. You'll recognize yourself in these true life stories from women who are walking their lives while their lives walk them and the lasting difference their journeys have made. I'm your host, Diane Wisga. Today, my guest is my longtime dear friend, storyteller, and international business executive, Michelle DeRue, who's joining us from Victoria on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. Once upon a time, I was teaching story in university. Michelle missed our first class, but came dashing into the second, having just gotten off a plane from an international business trip. She introduced herself to the class, and then I asked who was ready to tell a story based on the homework. No one moved. Michelle raised her hand and said, I'll give it a go, and stood up. What happened next was an invitation into a long-ago summer night on Gull Lake, Alberta, when a young girl tried sneaking out of the family's cottage to join the other kids for a bonfire at the lake. I can still see and hear Michelle count down the steps, skip the ones that creaked, getting caught and sent back to bed after a fib about needing the outhouse and starting all over again until she escaped. We were mesmerized. Yes, Michelle's extensive CV covers global business executive positions, business strategist, speaker, and educator who has devoted her career to helping people find relevant, timely solutions to a variety of business challenges. I expect we'll hear about that, as well as how a savvy international businesswoman succeeded because she knows how story can help people at all levels of organization build their knowledge, skill, and capacity to grow their business and their careers. I invited Michelle to join us so we could cover some of that ground, as well as learning how to shift from illustrious career to living not retired, but refired. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you, Diane. Good afternoon. Well, here we are, finally. <laughs> we have arrived together. <laughs> Indeed. I can't believe you remembered that story. Oh my gosh, that was such a long time ago, but it was such fun. And it was certainly a, a wonderful introduction to the incredible group of people that were in that class, such diverse backgrounds, all looking for ways to find better ways of telling their personal stories, their corporate stories or whatever. And it was just an incredibly enlightened, uh, fun, and interesting class that, of course, carried on into a story guild and some performance work that was completely unexpected. So you just never know where, where story is going to take it. No, we really don't. And it was a diverse group. There was, you know, there were, we had attorneys and executives and I think uh, a therapist in there. It was just a real rainbow coalition of people. And I remember the cohesion because we went from, you know, beginning class to next class to master class. And then we had, as you say, performances and then we created story works together uh, I don't think there was any way that we could have anticipated at the beginning where we were going to go with story. Indeed. Mm -mm. And it was all good. 
<laughs> it was all wonderful, as a matter of fact. One of the things that I remember about that story is how I can still see and hear the story. Not you telling the story, but the creaking steps, the image of the little girl trying to escape on a summer night just so that she can join the other kids. And I think that right there is evidence of masterful storytelling, that the teller themselves goes away. And what remains in our mind's eye are the images, the sensations, and the feelings that come from that story. Do you find that to be true? I do. And, and what, what I learned from the work that, that you did and contributed to our knowledge of understanding what story really is, is that when you tap into the stories of your own life, in this case, it inevitably taps into the stories or elements of the stories in other people's lives. And so it's a form of memory for everyone. And of course, it's wonderful to be able to have those moments of feeling of the smell of blueberry pie on the windowsill and all of the things that are part of, in my case, cottage life, um, which was a wonderful part of growing up. And anyone who's ever had a cottage or been to a cottage, I think that's what happens is that when you hear a story, suddenly it wasn't me, it was them. The listener becomes the person in the story. And, and repeats and enjoys that experience for themselves all over again. So it's a wonderful form of memory making, even as a listener. I think there's something very true about that. Uh, When we hear the words once upon a time, or I'd like to hear uh, a story, please tell me a story. Okay, settle down and I'll tell you a story. There's an exchange that happens right then where the teller Uh, slips into a different type of mode and the listener is in a different mode too. It's not quite the same as a conversation because as you say, there are memories, sensations, feelings that are going on. And while I might not have uh, experienced cottage life as a child in Alberta, Canada, I've experienced summers as a child. And that essence of the, of the memory is what connects us. And so if you were to tell that story in full, there were so many elements that people could relate to, not because they had been there, but because the images remind them of something else in their lives. That's what comes to life for them. That is what creates the story. And that's what uh, makes it so powerful. Well, and and I think that one of the things that I learned through that wonderful course was the difference between an anecdote where something happens and a story where something happens and then something changes and then something happens. And it's those moments, those critical moments. It's like all good storytelling, whether it's in film or books or audio books or whatever. It's that moment of, you know, the hero marches off to do whatever, experiences a moment of some sort of inflection point, a crisis, a turning point, a fall down the stairs, something. And then the story goes off in a different trajectory and it changes and the person somehow is changed or um, expanded or reduced or something in that moment. And it's that aspect of storytelling that makes, I think, the emotional connection happen. You want to know what happens next. 
And that was part of what you taught so well in that program. And, and that was how stories ended up becoming more a part of my work um, rather than just anecdotes. And there is a difference. So with that perfect segue available to us, you said that three phone calls determined <laughs> your destiny. So you've been talking about the stepping out and the unexpected. Would you share with us how the woman who wanted to work with elephants <laughs> ended up <laughs> cleared for takeoff? Wow. Um, well, yeah. It, so um, when I was very young, I had an absolute lunatic passion for horses. And of course, I told my parents that I was probably going to die if I didn't get a horse of my very own when I was a kid. Fortunately, things worked out that I actually was able to get said horse and had a wonderful time with um, living out in the country and, and living a, a kid's country life, which was incredible. But eventually, of course, one has to kind of hunker down into moving on towards adult life and so on. And um, as I moved on into high school and then university, there was a phone call one day um, that a friend from, in fact, high school was looking for someone to help out at a new airline that had just gotten started in the reservations department on the weekends. I was already working in a department store, making money to, you know, of course, go through university. And uh, this phone call sort of took me off into a possible second part-time job, but just on weekends. And I didn't know anything about the airline. It turned out that it was a company called Ward Air, which any of your Canadian listeners will go, I remember Ward Air, because everybody that ever flew Ward Air loved it. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll give it a go. And, uh, and that was great. And while I was, so that was sort of the launch into a part-time job in the airline industry, which was really just supposed to see me through to the end of my uh, university days, where I had started thinking that I was going to emulate Jane Goodall, who was a complete heroine in my world, um, but not with chimpanzees, but with elephants, because I really liked the idea of working with elephants in Africa and Africa as a concept or a place to go. Turned out that that wasn't what I was destined to do. Apparently being a zoologist or any kind of scientist in that world requires a lot of math, never my strong suit. Uh, but what I did discover when I was at university is that um, I really liked working in the area of psychology and understanding people and human behavior. And I did well in those courses. So I started leaning more in that direction and uh, eventually did graduate with a degree in psychology, which was not what I was expected to do. And then I did a minor in business just because it seemed like an interesting sideline, which I never knew at the time what I was going to do with it. And as I was finishing university, I was in that rather awkward place of saying, okay, so now what? And then the phone rang. And it was uh, someone from within the company who had actually met me on what was called a familiarization trip. It was learning more about the destinations that the airline flew. And while we had been in a destination, learning more about the destination, we'd gotten to know each other. And it turned out that he was starting a training department for the airline and wanted me to apply for a job. It was in Toronto, and I was living in Calgary at the time. So um, I didn't know anyone in Toronto, and I had no idea what that might look like. But in the absence of any clear direction at that moment in my life. And um, because if I was going to go on and do anything in the world of psychology, I was probably going to need to do a master's degree. I thought, well, um, full-time job opportunity, live in a new city. I guess I can give it a go. 
And so four weeks later, I was landing uh, in the middle of a blizzard in Toronto and going to a hotel on the side of the 427, sitting on the bed going, what in the world am I doing here? Fortunately, it was an incredible opportunity. The group that I was working with was amazing. The airline was a super success um, and had four and a half, almost five wonderful years working uh, and helping teach people how to book and, and uh, reserve. And um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible four years. And of course, lots of travel, which of course, yeah, once you get the travel bug, that one's a pretty hard one to get rid of. So that was certainly a, a big hook. And then the phone rang again. Uh, I had decided I needed to move back to the West Coast because as much as Toronto was a wonderful city and it treated me very well, my heart was really more in the West and particularly the West Coast. So I made the decision that I was going to do that. And about two weeks before I left, the phone rang. And it was a fellow that I had met doing a little brief consultation uh, out in Vancouver um, for a friend who said, a friend of mine's looking to start a new company and he's wondering if he it's going to be a good idea, and he wants someone from the travel industry to kind of comment on it. So I went and I commented on it. I said, hey, this is a really great idea. And he said, well, I'll be looking for people in a year or so, and maybe I'll give you a call. I said, oh, yeah, give me a call, whatever. Well, a year later, I'd completely forgot about that entire conversation, but sure enough, the phone rang, and it was one of his people saying, we've got a, a job opening here in the West, and we're wondering if you might be interested. <laughs> it was just magic, really. And that was, uh, that was really sort of phone call number two. I landed unexpectedly in Vancouver with a job, uh, which was incredible. Of course, I didn't know anything about the business. It was a business of franchising in the retail travel industry. His big idea was, let's see if we can start uh, providing a business system to people who own travel agencies and help them kind of um, businessize their businesses a little bit more, make it more sophisticated. Franchising is a great way of helping people develop really strong support or get really strong support for their for their companies. So um, I said, well, great. What, what's my job? And he said, well, um, you're going to be consulting with travel agency owners with uh, say in sales and marketing and operations and helping them to grow their businesses. And I thought, OK, well, I don't know a lot about business, but I know a fair bit about travel. And I've done a fair bit of sales work with the airlines. So I said, OK, let's give it a go. How many franchises do we have? And he said, one. <laughs> but we're going to go global. Our big idea is we're going to go global. And we'll have franchises all over the world. Okay. So 30-some-odd um, years later, that is exactly what happened. And because, of course, when you start with a young company, and if it's well-funded and well-thought-through, which this one was, it grew and grew and grew. And as it grew, I got the opportunity to try different positions and expand. And that's how I ended up in the global world of franchising. And uh, yeah, that saw me through a very long, wonderful career doing lots of different interesting things in the world of franchising. And then it was time to come back to Canada. I had been working the last few years in India uh, and decided that it was time to come back closer to home to spend time with my mom, who was at the time 99. Uh, healthy, 99, and living in Calgary. So I came back to Vancouver so I could be a little bit closer to mom and sort of thought, well, I guess this is maybe time for me to start looking for a job. And the third phone call came from a friend who said, so there's this 
opportunity that I think you'd be great for. And um, it's not necessarily right in your wheelhouse directly, but I'm really sure that you could do this work. Um, they, a company that I am uh, connected to, it's a surgical services business, and they have a surgical center in Vancouver that's looking for um, an operations specialist. And I think you'd do a great job. Well, I didn't have a job at that moment. So I said, okay, well, let's give it a go. And I met the chairman and we chatted and knew about my experience. And he said, I think you're exactly what we're looking for. So they offered me a position, but instead of just being for the one uh, facility in Vancouver, uh, they wanted me to actually look after all five of the facilities that were stretched across the country. So that's how I got into the surgical services business unexpectedly. Um, super, incredibly super sophisticated business that I didn't know a whole lot about. But I learned fast because you do when you get dropped into the deep end. Um, certainly fell on my face a few times, but overall uh, managed to make some improvements in the way the business was structured and how it was running. And it was an incredible year that ended very abruptly when an American company uh, bought a, a very large division of that organization and uh, made the organization a lot smaller. And at that point, they didn't need a COO for a division. So they very kindly said, thank you for your service. And um, here you go. Have a, have a great life. <laughs> so that was three phone calls, three completely different trajectories. And uh, that led me to the end of my official full-time working career and the beginning of this latest episode of just doing consulting and webinars and mostly playing, which is pretty darn fine. So I have a question before we move out into that other world. Uh, what I hear as the overarching theme that connects these three phone calls is, I don't know, but why not give it a go? Do you happen to recall what brought you alive as you were taking those, those chances and what were some of the unexpected insights and lessons that you gained? Well, I think every time an opportunity gets presented, there's this wonderful, <laughs> insane mixture of terror and possibility. And the idea that really, in fact, I, I heard this just recently, and I love this phrase, uh, there's no right and wrong. There's no win and lose. It's win or learn. And right. I just thought that was so perfectly descriptive of how you can take that idea of, I don't know if this is going to work out or not, and maybe it won't be a winner, but at the very least, I'll learn something. And how bad can it get? So I guess if, if there's a perspective that I had in all of that, it is that give it a go is a certain sense of optimism that says it's, it's very rare that you ever get into a situation where you can't rewind, redirect, change course. Any of those possibilities are potentially going to take you to places that you could never have actually imagined. I was not necessarily one of those people that knew exactly what my career path was going to be. 
from the beginning. And, and I always kind of envied those people who said, you know, at age nine, I'm going to be a doctor. And then they became one. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty impressive, but it certainly wasn't <laughs> my experience and it wasn't me. So it meant that the kind of the field was open to possibilities. So I think that the, the joy part of it was the joy of discovery and the sense of a little bit of, of, you know, working without a net, but there is kind of always a net. There's family and friends and, and um, there's always a way to find, find stability again when you kind of get knocked off your pins. But the joy of possibility was certainly a factor. Uh, and in all of those cases, it meant I would, was going to be working with people and helping them to do what they needed to do better. And I think that's a theme that was pretty consistent with all of those things. Here is a place where you can teach people things. Here is a place where you can help people. Here is a place where you can encourage people or maybe inspire people to do their best work or have their best life. And that, I think, was sort of built into my childhood, that you help people when you can. And so I guess those themes, even though they weren't absolutely clear, there was a sense of that being what each of those trajectories would include. And I think that's why the attraction was there. And that was where the joy came from, because there is nothing I love more than watching the light bulb turn on when you're <laughs> helping someone see a new way of doing things, which is what franchising was great at, um, seeing a, a new possibility for how to expand a business or, or go out and make sales calls or do all those hard things that people struggle with. But when you give them ideas and ways of doing things that they can own and absorb and it can change their trajectory, that's magic. And I think that's what sustained me through all of those roles. Magic and imagination. And you brought me to another segue again, uh, which is the coming to story and the helping of others. And you are recognized for helping people at all levels of organizations build their knowledge and their skill and their capacity. And you've often done this with storytelling, whether you've do you, whether that's happened in your training, whether that's happened in your platform speaking, would you share with us how it is that you came to storytelling and how that led you to actively invite story into your speaking and training portfolio? Um, well, coming to story was, was sort of one of those... <laughs> Let's give it a go moment, actually. I had been <laughs> I uh, transferred from, from Vancouver, where I had been working at the headquarters, to uh, Orange County, California. And bef be for about three years or so before I actually left to take on that assignment, um, I, had, <laughs> I had joined a band <laughs> and was doing some singing songwriting work with a friend of mine, which was, again, one of those sort of amazing sidebar things that you start doing just for fun and the next thing you know, you're on a stage doing performances. I don't know how that happens. But um, when I was going to be moving to California, I'm not a credentialed musician and I'm not a good reader of music and so on. So the likelihood of my moving to Southern California and getting involved in the music scene, which is way more sophisticated than what I was skilled at, uh, seemed a bit unlikely. But I knew that for especially a lot of the work that I did was very left brain. There was a lot of logical kind of structure and design stuff. And that I knew it would really be beneficial for me to continue having some of that 
typically kind of right brain thinking uh, on the creative side to kind of balance that out. And so I wanted to find something that would be kind of akin to maybe music or something that would be fun and engaging and involve people and maybe some performance things, whatever. And I was reading, as I have always done, the night school class curriculum that goes out with most papers from most universities and colleges to communities. And the community I moved into, it landed on my doorstep. (laughs) And I read through all the kind of night school course options. And your wonderful description of storytelling as a as a way of seeing the world and, and uh, learning very important skills, really got my attention. I knew I couldn't attend the first class, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll try going to the second one. If I fall on my face or I can't catch up, I guess I'll find that out when I get there. So, so that's how I ended up landing uh, in a night school class taught by the esteemed Diane Wiska. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing. And why I stood up that day and told that story, I don't know. But I think what's that nature abhors a vacuum? Isn't that the phrase? And when nobody stood up at all, I thought, well, nobody here knows me. I guess we got to get this party started. <laughs> so I'll just throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. Give it a go. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Go on, right? I know. Like, how bad could this be? That nobody knows me. There will be no long term effect here. So anyway, that's, that was how I landed there. And what was so surprising to me was I, I really didn't expect that I was going to be doing anything other than just learning some interesting things and had no idea how powerful the, the strategy and, and reality of well-crafted, well-structured stories uh, could be and where it could fit in people's lives. Um, I have a I heard this somewhere recently, and, and not only from a business perspective, but from a personal perspective. perspective. Um, this one was a very powerful concept, and the, the phrase was, the stories that you tell others about your life are also the stories that you're telling yourself about your life. Choose your words wisely. And I thought, that is such a powerful concept, because... How you tell your own life story to other people is also informing your sense of who you are in the world, whether you are a victim or someone who overcomes challenges and gets through obstacles, or whether you're sickly or whether you happen to get sick, but then you always seem to figure it out. Like there's just, there's a way of of thinking about your life that when you start to tell your stories about your triumphs and your tragedies and all of those things, I think you can make yourself a hero in those stories, or you can make yourself the, the guy in the black hat that, <laughs> that ends up getting shot at the end or something. I don't know. But I think that whole idea then kind of became the foundation for how do you tell stories in marketing? How do you help people see the value of a product or a service as being a solution to a uniquely human problem? By getting people, as we talked about at the beginning, to relate not to the person who's telling the story, but to the story elements themselves. So we started seeing, and now, of course, this was a long time ago, but now you're seeing the idea of storytelling as a key component of marketing. It's everywhere. It's become a thing now. It wasn't so much then, but it has become a thing now because people have finally realized that learning how to actually craft an excellent compelling, evocative, emotionally connected story is a place that gets to the heart of what people will believe. And of course, what people believe is typically how they behave. So, I think what you're, 
you're um, bringing up are the benefits of authentic narrative that goes uh, hand in glove with conscious marketing. And so often in the past, I think that business has looked at story as a silver bullet. Oh, here's one more shiny thing that we can use to market, to sell. And as you said earlier, um, and of course my train of thought just derailed, um, it is the, it's the, the connection that matters. And the difference between, say, an anecdote and a real story is a difference between telling someone a joke and engaging in conscious connection, or as Dr. Carmel Finnan calls it, story dialogue, so that the two of you then, or, or uh, the group of you then, are having an opportunity to authentically connect with each other, to authentically relate to each other, which involves not only the telling of a story, but also the listening out of that story and the listening to the responses to that story. So it, it seems to me that as we have come along from the time you and I first encountered each other in story, and we're not going to say when that was, it was a while ago, <laughs> that there has been a real shift in how story uh, was um, conscripted, if you will, to behave on the part of business and how it is being recognized now as something very organic, very real, very authentic and relationship-based. It's not just another little tool. So I'm curious to know, as you moved through that time from when we began working on story together, through the opportunities to use story in your speaking and training up until the time when you stopped using it professionally in those three phone call epochs, what, what shifts did you notice? What did you recognize as taking place? Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of those, um, those elements of what it means to craft story well. Um, because one of the things that I personally experienced in terms of a change was obviously when you are in executive management in companies, you have the responsibility often of providing feedback to people on performance and what they've accomplished and so on. And there's forms and strategies and models and tons of things that you can work from. But you actually taught me that the most powerful form of feedback is not actually speaking at all, but in fact, asking questions. You taught us how to ask or to invite the stories out of the teller when you were coaching us. And that coaching skill of helping people who have just presented a story for feedback from the group in the guild to say, you know, what did you think? Did that story land well? Did you find it interesting, engaging, and so on? There was a natural tendency when somebody asked for feedback to say, well, I think this, or I think that you should do this and, you know, whatever. And you never once ever did that. What you would say instead is something like, what was the most important thing to you, the teller, about that story? And why was it important? And how do you think that can, can be refined if you were going to make that point even stronger? So you coached the people who were presenting their information, their, um, their story for examination 
to examine the story themselves and to find the right refinements and edits to polish their story to make it more powerful and more compelling. And that turned out to be a a methodology, a way of approaching feedback that carried on into my entire career. And a lot of other people then would begin to use that same model because providing feedback has often been a very difficult thing for management to do without doing that, you know, let me tell you three things about what you did well, and now let me tell you about the thing you need to improve. That was, you know, however you couch it, that's often the way that it was done. But from that point on, I don't think I ever really ever did that again. It was always about, tell me more about this. How did you feel about it? Can we focus on this area a little bit? Tell me what was important to you about that. And those are the kinds of skills that I learned in storytelling class. (laughs) So (laughs) who knew? Uh, But that was one example of the kinds of things that came out of that work. Um, And of course, over the more you do it over time, I think maybe you get a little bit better at it, which was fantastic. I thank you for um, refreshing my recollection, as us lawyers would say, about that, because I think I had not so much forgotten it, but I had maybe misplaced it. Sometimes we take things so much for granted that we don't pay attention to the influence that we have on someone because of what we bring to the table, whatever it is, you know, whatever our skill set is. And I certainly didn't develop that by myself, um, being the oldest of a large in a large family of children. Uh, I was raised as Charles in charge. And so the idea that I know, I can tell you, I can, uh, takes and to this day still does takes a lot of um, discipline, concentration to back off and find that what question, that how question. So to be able to hear that that is what um, was instrumental in part in those classes and then and then carried forward, I think, or I hope, uh, informs our listeners, you know, people who say, okay, well, how can I offer feedback? How can I support someone else? Uh, I'm sure that our certified coaches know all of this. You know, that's what they're getting well paid for is to be able to ask not only the right question, but in the right order. So for those of us who are not going to become certified coaches, this notion of finding the question that listens the story out of the teller, whatever that story is going to be, that's the direction you want to go in. And as you are, you are talking about this, I'm thinking that in this way, in this way, you are helping someone develop their own story voice. Um, I just came up with that. <laughs> what, to you, to you, Michelle, what, what is your own story voice? What, what do you think is your own story voice? journey. Thank you for listening to part one of this episode of Stories from Women Who Walk, 
with your host, Diane Wisga, and my guest, Michelle Giroux. We hope you enjoyed and were nourished by our conversation between Victoria, B.C., Canada and Whidbey Island, Washington. You're also invited to check out over 330 episodes of this podcast, Stories from Women Who Walk, found on Simplecast, your favorite podcast platform, and my website, Quartermoon Story Arts. This is the place to thrive together. Come for the stories, stay for the magic. Speaking of magic, I hope you'll subscribe, follow, share a nice shout out on your social media or podcast channel of choice, and join us next time. You will have wonderful company as we walk our lives together. Together.